This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. The Kilter board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is the kickoff for season four, the first episode, an interview with Brittany Goris. I felt like I already knew Brittany a bit before we did this interview, even though we just met in person uh, for the first time up at the Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming. She roughed it out in my camper. It was a little warm midday, but we had a really great conversation, and um, I got to know Brittany through her piece that she wrote in Volume 21. It's kind of the long feature in there. It's called Staying Hungry on the Salate. We talk about that quite a bit in here, and overall just had a lovely conversation. My main message at the top here is to uh, support us on Patreon. We are trying to get to a modest amount of $1,000 for our subscriber support. And I've seen other podcasts blow up. I think we're at about $200 right now. So trying to get there by the end of this year. Yeah, just check the links in our show notes for that. And there's a link in there as well to get some zines and get 15% off or some merch. This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. In 1972, Chenard Equipment bet the farm, urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chocks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash clean climbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zeros is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes 
They're more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. All right, let's get into the episode. All right, so I'm sitting here with Brittany Gorris in uh, City Park in Lander. Um, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Excited to be here. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I should have started off with you reading your poem. That's how I did Kaya's interview. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you just wrote a poem for the climbing zine. Um, but I want to start off by telling this little story of when we met in the creek and I had never, it was like one of those spring creek days where the falcon closures are going on and like everyone ends up at the same crag that has like 20 roots and that was Sparks Wall. And we were like doing some obscure 510 and we like kicked off a loose rock and we, you guys were about, your crew was getting on um, zebras and moonbeams or moonbeams and zebras. Yeah. Zebras and moonbeams. Yeah. Zebras. It's the Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy yeah, Hendrix lyric. I, uh, you know, I was like kind of up there. I don't know what I was doing, but I was like rapping down and like there's some choss and someone went up like a buddy of yours and fell off and like ripped off his skin. It was like screaming and he came down <laughs> and then I saw you go up and you, I don't think you sent it, but you did really well. And you're like this tall blonde, like you were probably wearing your short shorts. And like, I was like, I've never seen this person before, but I just have a feeling I'm going to see her again. And now here, probably five years later, we are, um, yeah, having a conversation. So, <laughs> yeah, that was one. I think that was maybe like, it was definitely the second I sent it that day. Uh, I was climbing with a good friend of mine and he like ripped a huge goby and has really big fingers. So it was like a, a better climb for me at the time. Cause that was back when my knuckles were a little smaller. And uh, <laughs> I think that was one of the, that was like maybe in the first 10 513s I ever even sent on gear. Wow. It was it was the second 13 I did in the creek. It was I was I was very green still. <laughs> it's so cool to now have worked with you so much with your writing and I feel like that's how I've gotten to know you is is through your writing and that's a huge blessing for me for the climbing zine. I kind of think of it as like pen pal friends that I get to know and it, it's really an interesting way to get to know someone because especially like with your writing, you're being very vulnerable. And that's a, use, a word I use a lot with the climbing zine is that people are willing to tell their story in a vulnerable way. And with these great heights, there's always lows that go along with the heights. And so it's, it's been really fun to, to get to know you. And then the Climbers Festival brings us together, which is so cool because, you know, the Climbers Festival was started by Todd Skinner. And I know he's such an inspiration to you and he's very meaningful to you and he was with your ascent of the salate he was almost like this uh invisible partner or something like that that inspired you to get on that wall but yeah do you want to just kind of start off by just yeah talking about you know why todd skinner is a person that's important to you in climbing and and what you get out of what he wrote and, and his experiences with climbing yeah so the it kind of just happened by chance that I, you know, I, I never met the guy, but I climbed this route called City Park that's a, a famous route in the Northwest. It's like the, like, uh, kind of what got me into trad climbing. It's this well-known, really hard tips finger crack, and it was freed by Todd Skinner back in the 80s or something. I forget the year. And 
I became really interested in the history of this route because it has a really rich history. There was kind of like a local vibe that the locals were like really against out of towners coming in. They like the whole climb has a really interesting story where he Skinner was always he had like a local that would um, write that would like check if it was dry and then go write a message on like a bulletin board at the little general store. And this is a town of population, like less than a hundred people or something. And then, then he this would is call, index yeah, this yeah. is an index. Okay, and yeah, then yeah. Uh, he would call the general store and they would look at the note and tell him if the crack was dry or not. And if it was, he'd come up and he'd try it. And then the locals at one point, like greased the crack with the, um, grease from the railroad track uh, that goes through town and he had to burn it out and I'd never really climbed anything that had like a story before mm. and my experience on that climb was it was so rich and so like just fulfilling to kind of engage in something that had this history and realize that I just in in a lot of ways I kind of had this experience that made my climbing so much bigger than just myself and like my ego and like doing something that clipping chains just to satisfy like some egotistical need to accomplish something it became like this way to interact with like the past and also the future because I was like putting up this first female ascent and I wanted to like open the door for more women to climb hard trad in Washington even though I was not even a trad climber at the time um and it just, there were like so many more layers that it really opened my eyes to like how much richer a climbing experience could be to anything I'd experienced before then. And then I really like dove into trad climbing and became really fascinated with history. And I read, I, I met this guy, Jeff Smoot, who lives in Seattle and was an old friend of Skinner's. And he reached out to me after I climbed City Park and wanted to meet me and like talk about the climb and then he he had just published or like was in the process of publishing this book hangdog days mm -hmm. and i read that and it had this story of the salafe which was also like there were a lot of skinner stories but that one in particular really jumped out at me as this like just absolutely insane adventure tale of of like completely overcoming all the odds and and like you know it was very kind of just like wow this this person is a badass that really like kind of changed climbing history but I didn't and so I like was kind of like interested in like these topics at the time and kind of began to like investigate them more and the more I like delved into it the more I kind of realized that like the person you know like that he Todd Skinner was kind of like was the exact kind of person that I aspired to be which was like he was this person that like cared so deeply about climbing, but not just in a sense that he was going out climbing. Like he really cared about the community. I mean, he started like the International Climbers Festival and like all of these stories in Hangdog Days are about like, just like, you know, Jeff talks about being like a total Gumby and like showing up and just being welcomed into this group of like elite climbers that were just, you know, like so psyched on climbing and like, they didn't care, you know, what you climbed and they didn't care who you were as long as you were like a good person and passionate. And, and that's like really something that I respect and aspire to be is, you know, like to not, 
to, you know, like connect with people over the love of climbing and not necessarily like how hard they climb, but then still like, you know, inspire them to try harder. And then, um, over the last year or so I've, I've been reading, um, Todd's book, which is beyond the summit. Like a lot of people don't know this book exists cause it's meant to be like this, uh, it's not like a climbing book necessarily. It's, it's this book that's about, um, like achieving success in the business world, which was kind of what his motivational speeches were about when he was like a, a public speaker. But it it's in the frame of like telling stories of like his first like grade six ascent of the Trango Tower, you know, and like the Salathay. And I think there's just all these incredible stories about climbing. But the whole mindset of it is like, this this mindset I've really always been attracted to um, in this that is like um, essentially like you are capable of as the like the limit is just what your imagination can conceive of mm-hmm. and that you know like things might seem impossible um, just because they haven't been done but that only means that they're improbable not impossible and I just like really have always respected this vision that there was like more out there and that, you know, people are only limited by their imagination and by what they, what the scope of their dreams are. And that's something that has really like kind of led my climbing, you know, like if you look at the things I've done, like I wasn't a trad climber until I climbed city park, which is like a 13 plus like the hardest crack climb in Washington. I wasn't a big wall climber till I freed the Salathe. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> I wasn't even like a sport climber. I was like a boulderer and and that's just kind of like the mindset I I like to have and and like look for things that inspire me and like kind of validate that because it's like a daunting way to be sometimes to just have no experience and decide that you're going to chase down some crazy dream even though like there's no evidence to support that it could even remotely be possible based on past experience but to just like have this faith that if you want it bad enough and if you work hard enough that you can achieve these things and that was like that was kind of like the mindset that I adopted after like I started trying to follow in the footsteps of people from history that inspired me most. Cause that was why they succeeded is that was the vision they had. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more that it, I tried to do that, the more it worked. And then that became like the message that I want to spread to other people too. Where do you think you got that from as a person? I mean, um, how, yeah, when you started climbing was, was climbing, like I'm sure you had your I have a bad habit of asking two questions into one but like I guess the first question is is like did that come from how you were raised did that come from who you are just like in like internally or where do you think that came from in you to like set improbable goals and and try to achieve them where where do you think that came from mm, I I don't know that I know like the answer to that right off the bat because I definitely never really like tried to do anything monumental in any realm outside of climbing in my life. Like I I don't know that I've ever like had goals or anything that were outside the climbing world. So I feel like everything kind of just came from climbing. I don't 
I don't know that it was anything from like my past other than the fact that I've always been really competitive. Mm. I think it was kind of, it was a, a really negative thing for me when I was younger and didn't really know how to manage it. Were you and someone who started climbing as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I started climbing. Yeah. When I was like eight or nine. You're that generation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. not, I wasn't like a big comp climber or anything until mm -hmm. I was in my like early twenties. Yeah, I was super competitive, and I think there got to be a certain point where I couldn't really manage it in a healthy way, and I was having kind of a negative impact on the people around me mm. and kind of, like, alienating some of my partners and burning myself out, and it was just kind of, like, a, a toxic thing, and I kind of... I think I reframed it a bit to be competitive against myself, mm -hmm. and then that was sort of the point where I started to set bigger goals and want to do more because I wanted to be better than I was and not just as a climber, but as a person and have like a bigger impact on the people around me. That wasn't just like this negative competitive energy. That That's super interesting. Cause I agree with that same philosophy as being competitive against myself, but I've also never been, uh, high level climber when compared to my peers I've always kind of been in the middle of the road mm -hmm. so I think that's super interesting like how did uh, how did that like how'd you, how'd you get over that was it was it <laughs> trad or was it just an internal shift that like you're realizing your climbing partners are <laughs> honestly um, it really I owe it to a couple mentors that I had at the time there was a, a relationship I was in where my partner was, like, very transparent about kind of calling me out on things. Um, and also, like, a, a really close friend of mine that also would, like, called me out, you know, when I when it needed to happen and, and in a tactful way that kind of navigated my own ego and, and made me, like, much more self-aware of the fact that, like, I was super selfish about my climbing and and then like wasn't repaying the generosity that people were extending to me as like a climbing partner and mm -hmm. as a friend as like a romantic partner and and I think this was in my like mid early mid 20s and um I kind of this it was like shortly before I got into trad climbing I was really into sport climbing at the time and yeah, just I was lucky to be surrounded by the right people at the right time that kind of helped me understand how to be a better person. Wow, that's that's super interesting to yeah. have that journey because I, I never I didn't know that about you. Um, and I, I think that's because I, I just think of you as this community oriented per person that pushes yourself. But now it maybe makes a little more sense that you are competitive and you've just oh, yeah. channeled it to be because I understand that competition with yourself. Mm -hmm. I really do understand that. And um, what is uh, how, how how do you think how would you say things are better now that you feel like you're competitive with yourself and you don't I'm guessing that you don't I mean, I'm sure you still feel the maybe the aspect of competition, but it seems like you've kind of worked through that. Yeah. And now you are on this level where it, if you aren't in competitions, you truly are competing with your own. Yeah. Like best. I or think, whatever. you know, it, it wasn't ever like finding a way to 
not deal with it anymore because I still feel it. Like I always feel competitive with other people. It's just who I am. But I think what really mattered was the self-awareness was to like for, for my eyes to become open to the fact that it had a negative impact on other people Mm. because I never want that, you know, even if there's like this, like, you know, devil on one shoulder that's whispering, like, you need to be the best. There's, you know, I I would never want that to come at the sacrifice of like affecting someone else's experience Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, like this was something someone said to me recently, a good friend of mine, like all you get is the time you spent and you know it doesn't matter at the end of the day like you're gonna look back and like no matter how much you invested into something or whatever it is like your experience is defined by the time that you spent experiencing it and if that time was spent like fighting with your partner or like being so selfish and competitive that you caused them to have a bad time and all you cared about was like sending the proj then like did you really spend your time well But if you look back and you're like, wow, you know, like, fuck it. Like, my best friend and I went into the Alpine and we climbed a 5.9 and it was the best time of our lives. Like, what did you really spend your time? What what was a better use of your time, you know? And and so just, like, kind of being aware of the fact that, like, an experience is better shared. And it's a better shared experience if you're not, like, constantly trying to, like be the best person at the crag you know if you're just trying to do your own thing and hopefully that inspires other people and yeah and so did do you think the the switch from sport to trad had anything to do with taking a, a different journey or is that more coincidental that that was the shift at that time it wasn't really that it was the switch from bouldering to rope climbing okay like bouldering was where i was at the worst <laughs> I think um especially because I was training really hard and I was really ambitious and I wasn't seeing the results that I wanted and it seemed like I was climbing with a bunch of guys and they were like just succeeding on all the things that I was failing on and I couldn't handle it mm-hmm. and I kind of like got really burned out and I took a break for a while and then started sport climbing and and then things started to like go a little bit better and then yeah. I think by the time I started trad climbing, um, I had kind of come full circle to start to become much more the person I am today. So it was kind of like throughout the period where I was mostly sport climbing, but it was really catalyzed by the end of my attempts to be a boulderer. And were you on the path of like you wanted to be like the top in in competition or not really? I didn't uh, really ever think that would be possible for me because I was in Seattle and the kids are so strong there. There was never a chance. But (laughs) I just wanted to I wanted to be like just better than I was. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have like aspirations to ever be like the very best, but I wanted to be something, Right, right. (laughs) I guess. And so when you when you fell in love with with trad climbing, um, what what are some of the places that like? Because it seems like you're you're a you live out of your van, right? Yeah, yeah I've lived yeah. out of my van for coming up on four years. Four years, yeah. So was that like? Did you start to kind of have a circuit, basically, like where you go yeah. to the creek in Yosemite and 
J-Tree or Wyoming. Yeah. yeah. I still, I don't know that I have, like, a, a, a circuit all of the time because I really, one of the things I love most about traveling is the experience of showing up to somewhere new, especially, like, I travel by myself a lot. Mm-hmm. And, like, <clears throat> I think it's really rewarding to show up somewhere not really knowing anyone or anything and to invest yourself in becoming a part of the community, learning the history of the place, learning like what the stories are and then figuring out how to write your own contribution. Cause like I've experienced this in a lot of places, um, you know, just going through like showing up, being super intimidated alone and then feeling this acceptance and developing this sense of belonging and then wanting to give something back because it was so rewarding. And then, you know, like my way of doing that is going and climbing something hard and then like telling the story of it and hopefully like inspiring the people around me to try a little bit harder. Um, and when I first started like traveling full time, I definitely had no plan whatsoever. It was just like week to week, you know, totally winging it. And, um, along the way I really fell in love with a few places. Like there's no place I love more on earth than the Utah desert, Indian Creek. That was the, the place that really clicked for me as just, you know, this like ultimate freedom is kind of what I felt there. Mm-hmm. And you know, absolutely no judgment about who you are. Like, it doesn't matter who you are, you fit in there. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is so rare and so precious that it keeps me coming back every year. I don't think I could spend a calendar year without going back to the desert, at least Mm -hmm. for a little bit. Mm -hmm. It just, like, completes me. And I I often, like, revisit the Northwest because that feels like home to me, too. But... It's it's tough because the weather's been getting worse and worse up there with global warming. So it's the season just is like like this year it I bailed because it wouldn't stop raining and the year before that it was like 110 degrees in May. You know, and the year before that the borders to Squamish were closed because of COVID and Seattle was like this COVID hot spot and <laughs> so it just it feels like such a logistically complicated place. But I've also fallen in love with Yosemite recently. Um, I was always really intimidated, so I didn't go there until until last year, and then I did. And talk about history. There's nowhere you feel it more than climbing on El Cap. You know, the climbing history was written on those walls, and mm-hmm. it's just as climbing there is. It's really intense, but it's super rewarding. And I don't know. There's other stops that I make regularly, but. I also try and leave space to go new places because two plus two is always going to equal four Mm -hmm. and the brain gets kind of dull if you're not, you know, stimulating it by doing new things all the time. And I wouldn't want to burn out on road tripping just because I always did the same circuit. Let's talk about Indian Creek a little bit because any listener knows that that, that's my (laughs) favorite spot and I, I love to talk to people about it and when Izzy was interviewing me for your film, um, they were trying to have me describe the place. And you go to the creek all the time, and I go to the creek all the time, but 
uh, outside of that one incident, we've never even yeah. seen each other. Yeah, and that was like one of my first trips there. <laughs> <laughs> and I also go out to the boonies. You know, I, I yeah. go to these walls where I'm developing new roots, and, and I like to kind of get away from the big, you know, occasionally I'll do like I'll camp in Creek Pasture or the Super Bowl or something. But in general, I just go to get away. But it's it's always so fascinating to me because I know you're you and Kaya and all your friends and Mary are like doing your thing. And it's it almost feels like it's this parallel universe. <laughs> but yet we're having a similar experience. And mm-hmm. I feel like I feel I, I feel so similar that you do like it's it's a place like it's part of my soul i can't imagine not going there and all of this um what do you think that comes from specifically from that place i think it's a combination of things i think there's you know obviously it's a the most rich inspiring landscape that you could ever lay your eyes on i mean just being up at one of those crags when the golden hour hits at the last light of day, just watching these like winding dirt roads that stretch on forever and the going into the middle of nowhere, you know, you have like no cell phone service and it's just like, you're immersed in this like unbelievably beautiful landscape of these towering sandstone walls. And it just, everything feels so endless out there. It's like, it feels like there's, endless climbing like endless potential for adventure you know endless room for growth and I think like it is like pretty wild out there in the sense that you know you're really far away from services you kind of like commit to being out there for long periods of time to make it worth all the driving and I think like all of the factors geographically and um and like the nature of the climbing kind of draws a certain type of person and those people are like very much the kindred spirits that i think have made me fall in love with it where it's just people that the creek and like the other thing about it is it's like very you know like in order to have enough gear to climb some of these routes like most of the time you need to roll out with the crew you need to make friends you need to be okay like sharing with others and asking others for help and it really the nature of the climbing and the place it kind of just creates connection on its own and um you know regardless of where you camp or what circle you run with like you're still doing the same thing and um i you know i've met my best friends in the creek i've fallen in love in the creek i've it just is, it keeps me coming back for all of those reasons. And I think that's a shared experience that a lot of people have, you know, like uh, climbing really has always been like a collector of misfits. And I think nothing speaks more to that than the desert because, you know, you go out there and like there are, aside from, you know, like you should probably pay for camping once in a while unless and then otherwise you'll end up like me and be on the ranger's bad side uh (laughs) but like other than that you know like as long as you're not climbing on the sandstone after it rains or like pooping in the desert you can really just go like live out whatever adventure you dream of and and you know we all go there seeking this like freedom and this community and this just like endless 
ability to do what we want and you know that's not going to draw like it's not going to draw the kind of people that you don't want to be around it's going to draw the people that are same the same as you and so you know it just creates this like sense of belonging that i think is you know what keeps all of us coming back and and what makes us connect so deeply with it i feel so similar to you but it's just so cool to hear it from your words and your perspective and um thank you for sharing that um part of what i um admire about you too is is your storytelling and how you craft a story and your feature story in volume 21 of the climbing zine which you're on the cover of um <laughs> photo that, that izzy took and uh that Salathe story of you you climb the Salathe um as your first big wall as a free climb um was to me I I was just very inspired by it like before the story you know before I had dove into the story and before we you know worked with the photography and, and kind of figured it all out and and that whole journey um so where does the where does that Salathe story start for you i think it started um kind of when i first really like learned about the story of todd skinner and paul piana's first free ascent when i read it in hangdog days i it, like kind of blew my mind you know and and i and then i went on to hear that it wasn't just this route it was this you know like crack climbers wet dream you know the salathe head wall you hear about it and everyone says it's the best crack climb in the world mm -hmm. and i had you know this i climbed city park in 2018 and i didn't really fall in love with crack climbing right away but it kind of grew on me when i started going to the creek and i started spending a lot of time climbing cracks and over the years that followed, I really fell deeply in love with crack climbing and kind of began to like specialize in it and be known as something of like a crack climbing specialist. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't, I actually don't aspire to be a specialist in anything. I want to be super well-rounded at all things, but there's nothing wrong with like enjoying a particular thing more than others. And um, I, after I climbed Stingray in, January of 2020. Is that in Joshua um, Tree? Yeah, Joshua okay, Tree. Yeah. I like kind of made plans to go to Yosemite with my friend Prith, who I had worked on Stingray with, and we went there and we were going to climb El Corazon, which I actually did this year um, as my second El Cap route. Um, but and so I, at the time, I had like no idea. I had no bit like multi pitch experience at all, really, other than like you know pretty basic stuff. And you said you don't even like hiking. <laughs> yeah, no, I hate hiking. I still hate hiking. I'll never not hate hiking. Um, but uh, I just kind of agreed. I was like, yeah, sure, we'll go climb El Corazon. Like, you know what you're doing, and I don't. So you know what better way to like get introduced to big wall climbing? And then COVID happened, and we kind of got chased away, and. I spent the next year or two, uh, like getting into multi-pitch climbing a lot more and, and then, you know, like started to have dreams of going to Yosemite. I think, um, I think it really solidified 
that winter um, because I climbed. That was when I did um, East Coast Fist Bump, which was uh, rated 514. Um, and like to climb 514 on gear was a big dream of mine because not a lot of women have done it. And um, and after that, I kind of like that had been such a big dream for so long that I really had to take a step back and think about like where the hell am I going you know what is the next thing and I thought you know like well the only thing bigger than that you know is to start climbing like walls and if I'm going to climb a wall I'm going to climb the south eh? obviously you know like it's this thing I've known about for a long time and as soon as it got into my head it wouldn't leave and it was like this I had like this is where I have to go this is you know, it just called to me so strongly as soon as I started to, like, believe that I even had a shot. And then once I started to want to do it, nothing could stop me at that point. It was like, I'll spend the next five years trying this if I have to. And luckily it didn't take that long. <laughs> it took a month. Um. <laughs> and I think that to me it's it's so um, mind-blowing because I've climbed the Salafé and it took me years of, and I'm not a great big wall person, um, but I I bailed off El Cap twice. I climbed <laughs> other walls in Yosemite. I bailed off. I climbed walls in Zion. And the Salafé to aid it took everything I had over five days. Um, but you also struggled like a motherfucker too. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's why your story is so interesting. It's like, oh, this chick climbed the Salafé as her first big wall she might she must just be like superhuman but you struggled with the hauling you struggled with what are some of your most like memorable struggles that you had during that process honestly at the time they felt like struggles but in hindsight everything went super smoothly because I have since climbed walls where things went wrong so much bigger than anything that happened on the Salafé like when I climbed El Corazon this spring, everything went wrong. Everything. And we still managed to pull it off. But it, like, it made the Salafé look like a walk in the park. But, you know, at the time when I was trying the Salafé, I think there were, like, I, there were just so many unknowns. And I think while nothing went wrong, it all went really smoothly is in like a big picture sense where, you know, like I showed up, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was able to like connect with people that helped me and I was able to like rehearse the head wall. And then I kind of like sent everything pretty quickly on the push and it all like went really smoothly, but it was just this kind of giant question mark going into it of like, wow, I've backpacked, twice in my life and they were both terrible they were both like one of them was here in wyoming in the winds where i like got hailed on and was post holing through snow in june and bailed because like the route was wet and <laughs> and the other one was like in college where i got rained on the whole time and it was super lame and and you know i was really like resistant to hiking and you have to hike up the back of el cap which is pretty intense for I mean, it isn't for a lot of people, but for me it was. And, you know, I didn't know how to haul. I was, like, really afraid of trying to sleep on a portal edge because I've always been kind of an insomniac. 
And then just, you know, like, mainly it was, I was very intimidated by the idea of trying to perform, trying to, like, execute something when the stakes are so high. Because you've already, you've put so much work into something to get to, to even just get to the base of the Salate head wall, you know. Compared to other El Cap routes, it's not quite so intense because there's a lot of moderate terrain. But, you know, like really, you know, you, every day is a challenge, you know. You have to climb the free blast and the monster and then you have to climb the boulder problem or the Teflon corner. And then you have to do the enduro corners and you have to do all of these things just to even have a chance to succeed just to even get there and then you get there and you're like okay like I I better not waste this opportunity that I've worked so hard to like earn and it's just the the pressure is so much more intense than trying to red point something on the ground and I think like really the biggest challenge is learning to to like kind of not get in your own head and I don't know that I have, like, an answer for how to do that other than, you know, just accepting that, like, if I wanted to make it happen, I had to try mm -hmm. and then hope it was enough. And I guess it was. <laughs> you had this beautiful experience. Um, you know, people should read the essay because it's hard to it's hard to really analyze. And I, I think we probably talk about writing more than any, like, climbing podcast out yeah, there, which is awesome, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so just, just read Brittany's article in, in volume 21 to get a sense. But one thing I remember, um, and that, that article started off as this, almost a blog post, really, yeah. you had posted. Um, and we worked on it a ton. Like, we mm -hmm. worked on your story a lot. And one of the coolest parts was you had just kind of mentioned you spent like a day on Long Ledge. It's like a rest day and... Were you up there with SJ at the time? Or were you by no, yourself? This, or? It wasn't ever. I never spent really time there with anyone else. Because you were just mini traction and working yeah, it. Alone. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I, so I would spend a lot of time. I would just hike up there by myself and wrap in and and usually when I when I was with SJ, we were going down to the Boulder Problem or something. The mm -hmm. head wall was just me, mm -hmm. and you know you're like three thousand feet off the ground in this like improbable place. And just sitting on long ledge by myself. I mean, it wasn't one day. It was a lot of days. Mm -hmm. um, and you said you felt like, I don't remember what words you wrote, but it definitely seemed like you were accompanied by these giants of Yosemite climbing in a way. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you describe that experience? That, yeah, so yeah. it just, you know, like, the Salathe is one of the most historic routes. And yet somehow... I feel like real like history buffs know a lot about it, but it gets kind of overshadowed by the nose and everything, obviously. And the free riders and the too. free rider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Salathe was the second route to ever be climbed on El Cap, and it was the first when it was done. It was actually this huge step forward in big wall climbing because the nose was done in the siege style with fixed lines to the ground over two years, and then. Um, in I want to say 66 maybe don't quote me on that uh sometime in the 60s <laughs> <laughs> sometime in the 60s it was you know done by Royal Robbins and Tom Frost and Chuck Pratt as like the first route up El Cap without siege style tactics and then in 81 I think no 88 
oh man, I should know this. Skinner, uh, Skinner and I think Fiona. It was 88, yeah. I think it was 88. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it was 88. It was 61 and 88. Mm-hmm. Um, Skinner and Piana freed it as the first route on El Cap to ever go free, which and their story's crazy too. It's like, absolutely insane. I think you could probably reference uh, like an Enorma cast where Paul Piana talks yeah, about it because they like almost write-up. died and then mm-hmm. like didn't they get arrested at the end or yeah, something they, crazy. They yeah. sold all of their belongings and a yard sale in Camp Four to be able to fund the trip because they were totally <laughs> broke. Then they had this insane rock fall situation happen and they at the top right yeah it was like pulling over the summit or something right something crazy like there was this block that everybody had used as an anchor right and i think paul just happened to clip this other piton and then like the block slid off and the piton kept them off the ground and then like the the rock like slid over a jumar and the jumar was what um prevented the rope from being cut and there was like this other tidbit that I think is kind of funny that was um I think like a pitch or two before like Todd had been eating a carrot or something and he like threw the top of the carrot off and I don't know if this is true but it, the the way I read the story was that like the carrot top like fell all the way down and people like thought it was some rock fall and so they kind of cleared the base <laughs> and then shortly after this giant like widowmaker boulder comes off the top of El Cap and like probably would have killed some tourists if if it weren't for the carrot top which <laughs> I yeah I don't know if this story has anything behind it but I heard it once and I liked it <laughs> yeah. a lot because I eat a lot of carrots too <laughs> but anyway so like you know there's like not only those stories but then there's like Mark Hudon and Max Jones go up and kind of make history and big wall climbing by climbing that route as free as can be which is like a huge, a huge milestone. And that was way before that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it was yeah. sometime between. And Marcuda, is he yeah. camping right over there or something? I know. Yeah, that's uh, cool. I've never I, met him. So. Oh, I've I've been yeah. following him around. <laughs> <laughs> Be my friend. <laughs> they climbed that route and kind of like even put the idea of big wall free climbing on El Cap into people's minds. You know, like people hadn't even thought about it until they go up there and. They're like, let's climb as much as we can and we'll aid the rest. And then, you know, like there's, you know, so many other historic people that have gone up there too. Like Steph Davis goes and does the first female ascent. And and then I think it was um, Hidetaka Suzuki maybe did the first link of the whole head wall in one pitch. And they're just, you know, like all of the biggest characters that come from this really defining age of climbing have, you know, written climbing history in the cracks of the Salafé wall. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge inspiration for me to feel like I was following in their footsteps, not only for myself, but to maybe like add my own chapter to the story of this, the route that Royal Robbins called the best rock climb in the world. And, you know, that holds weight today. I would confirm that based off my limited experience and uh and so like yeah, yeah I, I, <laughs> I didn't even free it but I still think it was my favorite rock climb I ever did. Mm-hmm. And we just were pulling on gear. <laughs> yeah. And so just the time I spent up there it felt like you know there's so many you know you see like all of these iconic photos of like Royal Robbins laying on El Cap Tower by himself and like Todd Skinner climbing that pitch off the tower and there's like really iconic photos of Steph Davis and even like Brad Gobright climbing the Salathay head wall. Just, you know, every legend that's ever lived has 
has touched that crack and to be up there putting my own fingers in it it was like both like very empowering and deeply humbling Mm -hmm. to be you know just being up there really like it makes you feel so small Mm -hmm. because you're in like the most exposed place imaginable free hanging 3,000 feet off the ground you feel so like so insignificant but at the same time like I felt like I was a part of something so much bigger than myself like this rich incredible history of all these people that had made this experience possible by pounding pitons into these cracks by like having this vision of free climbing by you know writing this history and and so it kind of like defined my experience the the just experiencing all of that that's a perfect segue into something i've just seen in in your writing and from hanging out with you the last couple of days is that you are aware and, and it makes so much more sense now that you went through this period of struggle where it seems like you've seen the light because you almost kind of gave you know not that you gave into negativity but like mm-hmm. you 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 kind of went into a space where you knew it wasn't you and you knew it wasn't healthy to be super uber competitive right um and that's so interesting to find that out that tidbit of information just because i see you and in everything it's just so you're so clear about what you want to do for other people Mm -hmm. um and i think that's great especially you're pretty young you know you're like what 29 30 something like that oh that's young i feel old (laughs) (laughs) how old are you i'm 29 29 yeah yeah yeah. i think that's young but i'm 43 and (laughs) age is all relative totally um my point though is that you just seem very clear of you want to be a role model and you know that other people look up to you i think that a lot of people don't get that and even though like you said before we turn the mics on you're not chasing endless sponsorship you're not doing photo shoots you're just all you're you're letting it all happen naturally but you are aware that eyes are on you from other people especially i'm guessing um younger climbers mm-hmm. so what do you want to do with being someone who is, what do you call yourself, like a unprofessional <laughs> climber? Or? I think I, I usually say like I'm a professional climber and an unprofessional dirtbag. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love that. And I, I think that says, that's, is true to who you are. But what, you, what do you want to do for younger climbers? What do you want to, what message do you like try to portray through your actions and in your philosophies and everything? I essentially would like to pass along the things that I feel like I've learned from everyone that's most inspired me, you know, whether that's been in person or just these like historic figures, which is just kind of the, the idea that I started this interview talking about that, like, really we are all capable of so much more than we could ever imagine. If you're willing to believe in yourself and put in the work and believe that like, just because it seems impossible, you know, that doesn't mean anything. I think one of the most meaningful things someone ever said to me was after my season in Joshua Tree, a friend that I hadn't even climbed with that much told me that I had inspired everyone to try harder. And it touched me so deeply to hear that because, you know, I look at the most meaningful experiences I've had with people I look up to and walked away feeling like you know I wanted to be not just like a better climber but a better person and like a person that you know like does it does climbing and like 
chases these things just out of love and passion and inspiration and not like the pursuit of some ego padding thing or you know and like I feel that really strongly about my role as like a professional climber that you know I I would only ever represent companies that I believe in you know like products that I would choose to use whether they paid me or gave me gear or not you know and and that was something I learned at a pretty young age actually here in Lander I took a clinic with Jonathan Segrist that had a really deep impact on me because it was just like it was supposed to be advanced red pointing but it was just like a day climbing with J-Star and you know he would like talk about his sponsors and everything with so much integrity like he genuinely believed in everything he represented and he was like so interested in what I was climbing as like a 512 minus climber and happy to like hang the draws for me and answer any like dumb questions I had and you know like we hung out afterwards briefly and then like a year later he remembered me and now we're friends and it just like gave me this like vision of what a role model looked like and who I wanted to be like someone that cares about the climbing community in a sense of not just like this abstract thing that gives me a place to belong but like every individual person I meet you know while I don't have a good memory and I'm probably going to forget their name guarantee I'm going to forget their name you know maybe I I could like at least make them feel welcome in the climbing community and and connect with them even if I don't remember it and <laughs> and just like want to like give the same experience that climbing has given to me to like as many people as I can you know I want people to feel inspired and like able to pursue their crazy dreams and believe in the impossible but I also want people to walk away from like seeing things I climb with feeling the importance of like community and connecting with other people and you know like caring about other climbers and about other plate like the places that we climb regardless of your ability you know regardless of like who you are because I think you know it's so often things are lost when you're just climbing with people that you know if you climb hard you climb with other people that climb hard and it's like kind of like circling back I think that's another just a little more creek spray I think that's another like really beautiful thing there is you know like nowhere else has uh have I experienced to that extent a lack of people caring how hard you climb you know it's like we're all here just to like live our lives you know in the best way we know how and I think that isn't necessarily true in a lot of places and that's something else that I like care about is just you know like understanding that everybody's experience is equally meaningful regardless of if you're trying to free climb the Salate or if you're trying to top rope your first five nine you know and I think that we could like have more of that definitely and I, I think it's so cool that you're holding up that beak because that's that's what climbing is I think to so many people but as climbing changes and you know you learn about these people that only climb on plastic and yeah. you hear um you know I, I think I heard an episode of climbing gold where they were talking about coaches were like these kids need to have two or three weeks of it just a sabbatical to go be <laughs> on rock and it kind of breaks yeah. my heart that right. it's gone to that point 
but at the same time, I think what's really highlighted in climbing is, is us being outside and like this ideal, you know, our community can always get better, but I feel like there's this ideal to strive to of acceptance of everyone and Mm -hmm. then sharing. And I think that's, that's why it's so cool. We're up here having this conversation and this is what has brought us together because we've tried to make plans before (laughs) and it just hasn't worked out in the Creek or whatever, but the climbers festival has sets that intention that goes all the way back to Todd Skinner. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is what, why we're together now. And then you're putting your intention out there to other people. And I'm sure that, you know, there's so many people you've positively affected and inspired along the way. And and you're going to continue to do that into the future. So I think that's, uh, I think that's really awesome. I think that's part of why, like, I represent, you know, like, some big names in climbing in terms of, like, sponsorship or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, I drive, like, a a really, like, rusty old Econoline van and half my – the cams that I didn't get from the amazing Totem company, like, the rest of my cams are, like, total jank. <laughs> it's, like, things with the trigger wires pop off all the time. And, you know, I'm, like, dumpster diving for food half the time and, you know, just – trying to essentially like I don't know my whole philosophy is you know it doesn't none of it matters except the heart Mm -hmm. and the vision that you bring to the game Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how nice your gear is obviously there's better gear out there but like at the end of the day you know what really matters is like your love of climbing and you know if you want to do something bad enough you'll find a way Mm -hmm. or you know if you believe there is a way like you'll make it happen regardless if if you like if your car breaks down between every location you drive to or if you like are working some crappy job at the lander bar just to spend the season here or you know whatever it is and i think that's kind of how climbing used to be and there is like a bit of a loss of it these days with like kind of the influx of money into the climbing world mm-hmm. Which, like, I don't know, you know, it'd be nice to get more money myself, but, (laughs) you know, I would hate to see some integrity lost for the sake of that. And, you know, with, like, the gym thing and everything. Well, thanks for doing what you do for our community. (laughs) And um, I feel like this was, even though I would have loved to share a rope with you in the creek, um, and we will in the future. Absolutely. This this was a perfect time to meet and, and be brought together in the spirit of, the climbing community and um sorry i was late for the interview and thanks for your time (laughs) absolutely yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's my pleasure it's it's really cool to be here in lander and you know like this place is so rich in history itself and you know we you've been coming here for a long time we obviously both have like personal connections here so it's cool to to share that and to meet and maybe the only other place that we both could connect with as much as the desert <laughs> totally absolutely absolutely well thank you let's go check out the awesome art crawl <laughs> yeah, this let's evening do it. that was conversation with Brittany goris so stoked to have done that one music is from devin dabney and our digital editor and producer is chad rich Signing off from uh, hot Durango, Colorado. Peace.